chapter 9. I hope you grabbed a listening guide on the way in. Not only can you see the many things that are going on in the life of our church, but you can also follow along the sermon today. Mark chapter 9. What if Jesus was not who you expected him to be? That's the experience of three disciples that we're going to read about this morning. Peter, James, and John. We're in Mark chapter 9 this week, but Mark chapter 8 came right before, and Jesus asked a simple question. Who do people say that I am? And his disciples responded, some people say that you are John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people say that you are the great prophet Elijah raised from the dead. And then he turns it and makes it more personal. Who do you say that I am? And Peter chimed in. He said that you are the Christ, meaning you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the one who was prophesied about in what we call the Old Testament. You are the fulfillment of that. You are the future of God's people, Israel. And then Jesus began to explain what that meant. And in Mark chapter eight, we see that Peter had the right vocabulary, but he had the wrong definition. He knew the word Christ and he rightly applied it to Jesus. And yet he defined it in a much different way than Jesus did because to Jesus, the Christ meant suffering, meant being handed over to the religious leaders. It meant death, it meant resurrection. And Peter just couldn't stand for that because that's not what it meant to him. And Jesus, in fact, said, get behind me, Satan, because you have the things of man in mind and not the things of God. And then he went on to describe what it means to be a follower of Christ. And now the disciples, especially those three, Peter, James, and John, are gonna get another opportunity to get it right. I love that because I don't know about you, but I didn't get everything from last week's message right this week. And so it's a great thing to have another shot at it, to have another opportunity to see Jesus revealed. But these three did not expect what it was they got. Chapter nine of the Gospel of Mark says in verse two, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So this story is called the transfiguration because Jesus was transfigured. In your listening guide, transfiguration literally means to be changed or transformed. Today, most Bible scholars believe this mountain is Mount Hermon, H-E-R-M-O-N, in northern Israel. I brought a picture with me so you could see it. When we think of Palestine, we don't usually think of snow-capped mountains. And in fact, we are right. There are not snow-capped mountains. There is one snow-capped mountain, and it's this mountain. And they believe this is the mountain that Jesus took those three disciples on top of. So we can see just by the picture that it was a long journey up. This wasn't just an afternoon um, leisurely stroll up a hill. Uh, This is a mountain, and Jesus takes him there. Why did he take these three disciples? First, they probably needed encouragement. They recognized that he was the Christ, and yet they learned that the Christ would suffer, that Jesus would die. 
Uh, Peter specifically needed encouragement because I don't know what names Jesus has called you, but I'm guessing if he called you Satan, like he did to Peter in chapter eight, you would need a little personal encouragement. So Jesus takes these three up the mountain and he is transfigured. In your listening guide, this transfiguration tells us three things. First, it tells us and reveals what Jesus is like now. The transfiguration reveals what Jesus is like now. You know, when we care about someone, we want to know what they're doing when we're not around. We're interested in their lives. That's the great thing about social media. I think that's why they were, why it was invented. So that we could be plugged into people that we otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to know the details of their life. And so you can follow along a friend on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever your choice is. I do this with Amanda sometimes. Like, for example, last weekend, she went to a conference and I stayed at home with my dearly loved children. It's harder to dearly love them when I'm by myself, but they're dearly loved. And, uh, and, and she was gone, and she was so busy that uh, she didn't really have time to call and check in. At least that's what she said. And, uh, but thankfully, I could follow along. Her, it was Instagram, and I could follow along the conference uh, because of the hashtags and different things. And it was, it was good for me. It was, I enjoyed kind of knowing what was going on. Because when you care about somebody, that's what you want to know. Sometimes we learn too much, like we learned that all of our friends got together without us, and somehow they accidentally ended up at the same restaurant at the same time without us. They lost our phone number for that one moment in time. <laughs> but it's great, but you know, Jesus commands us to love him. He says, if you love me, then you're going to keep my commandments. He commands us to love him, and I wonder if we give much time and thought to what he's doing right now. What's it like for him? What, what does he look like? What, what are the things he does? What are the things that he doesn't do? Where is he? What's he do on a Tuesday afternoon? I know what I'm doing on a Tuesday afternoon, but what is he doing? Most of the time, we only care what he's up to when we have a need that we are bringing to him. But other than that, it's kind of out of mind and out of heart. But the transfiguration helps us understand what he's like right now. Because in the words of one commentator, the veil of Jesus' humanity was lifted in that moment so his deity could shine through. John was one of the three on top of this mountain watching this happen. He got to see this again. He's a young man. In fact, probably the youngest of all the disciples the first time. But now he's an old man in Revelation chapter 1 when he sees this version of Jesus again. He's been arrested and put on an island as a prison because of his faith in Christ. It says in Revelation chapter one, verse nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was being persecuted. All of the other disciples by this moment had lost their lives because of Christ. He had not yet lost his life, but he was suffering in prison. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he was having church, but he was by himself because he's on this, in a book in prison. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it into the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
and in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John gets another opportunity to see this version of Jesus, just like when he was transfigured on that mountain. And what do we see? We see Jesus with a loud voice like a trumpet. It was startling to John. He had the appearance like a son of man. That's a phrase that's used for Jesus multiple times throughout the scripture. He was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That was a sign of dignity. It was a sign of royalty, which is interesting because John mentioned Jesus' clothing at the end of his gospel. You remember in John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross and look what they're doing with his clothes. It says in verse 23, And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast its lots uh, for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So the last time John mentions Jesus' clothing, Jesus is hanging naked respect the cross as a sacrifice for you and I, and they are treating him with disrespect. They're dividing among themselves his clothing. But in Revelation chapter one, the current picture of Jesus, he's wearing a kingly robe and a golden sash. His hair is white like wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This Vision of Jesus, this revelation of Jesus is so outlandish, it's so out of this world that John just reaches for metaphors to describe it. He can't even accurately describe it. And that's why he's saying it was like this and it was as though this. And then it says his feet are like burnished bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. When he speaks, it's like Niagara Falls. It says he has seven stars in his right hand. Now Jesus tells us what those seven stars mean and the seven lampstands that it mentions at the beginning of the passage we read. It says in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus has these stars which represent his messengers in each of these seven churches. But at the beginning of the passage, it says that John looks at him and he's walking among these seven lampstands which are the churches, which answers an important question for us today. I bet a lot of us, maybe even half of us today, woke up this morning and asked ourselves, should we go to church? Some of you woke up a little early and you would say, well, it's kind of cloudy. And I feel sad when it's cloudy. <laughs> and I don't want to be sad at church. So I'm not going to go. Some of you woke up a little late and it was a little bit sunnier. And you're like, man, it's a beautiful day. And I work really, really hard during the week. And Saturday is for running errands. And Sunday is a day of rest. And God wants me to rest. He even gave us a Sabbath for the purpose of resting. You know what? I think I'm just going to sleep in today. I'm guessing more than one of us today had that conversation with ourselves. But if you ever ask yourself, why should I attend church? Why should I be a, a regular part, a consistent part, a weekly part of a Jesus community? Because Jesus walks among the churches. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. There is no biblical thinking that could say I could be close to Jesus without being close to the church. 
doesn't work like that. He walks among the churches and he has these seven stars in his right hand. It says he has a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. Now we know it's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth, but the force of his word is like a weapon. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus went to pray after the Last Supper with the disciples and while he's in the garden praying, sweating drops of blood, saying to God, not my will, but your will be done. A mob comes for him and they come with lanterns and torches and weapons. And when the crowd gets there, Jesus says to him in one of the gospel accounts, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he, I'm the one you're looking for. And the gospel says, when he says that, the whole mob falls down on their back. At just the force of his word, this whole mob is pushed back because his word, his mouth has a sharp two-edged sword. And it says his face is like the sun shining in full strength. This is the experience of John and James and Peter on the mountain of transfiguration, just bright like clothes that you can't launder. Face shining like the sun. You know, there's a movement among Christians, people who consider themselves Christians, of taking the scripture and taking the words of Jesus and translating them to make them more palatable for 2017. It's kind of rubbing off all the sharp edges, all of the offensive bits. You know, we read it and we go, well, I like that. That feels right. So we keep that. We read another sentence that doesn't feel right. So I'm just going to take that one out. I'm going to ignore that. And when you hear these people talk about Jesus, they always talk about Jesus in like a cool uncle who's very wise kind of way. Wise or chill. You know, my cool uncle who spent some time in San Francisco is so is like wise but super chill about it. You know, that's the way they talk about Jesus. You never hear anyone fussing with the Bible, taking out parts and rearranging parts and dismissing parts. They never talk about Jesus in a Revelation chapter one way. They never talk about Jesus whose face is like the sun at full strength. They don't talk about Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Because when you see this picture, when you have the experience that Peter, James, and John did on the mountain of transfiguration, you know that my response to that Jesus is worship, not to mess with his word. If Jesus is just a cool permissive uncle, then there are probably some things that he cares a lot about, but a lot of things he's just really laid back about. So he probably doesn't mind taking this part out or scratching this sentence from his words. But when you think of Jesus' voice is like roaring waters and loud like a trumpet, who's wearing a white kingly robe with a golden sash, it's self-righteous to think that we should manipulate his word. And so the transfiguration reveals to us what Jesus is like right now in this moment. Number two, the transfiguration shows us Jesus has no equal. Verse four. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Peter, James, and John look up. 
not only is Jesus' deity shining through in a way they had never experienced before, in a way they had not expected, but now Moses and Elijah are with him talks. But Moses and Elijah had a pretty impressive resume. Moses had been dead for about 1,400 years, but here's what his life was like. He was an Israelite born in Egyptian slavery, but he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. It was a miracle how he ended up there. So he had the best education available on planet Earth at that moment. He was called by God to deliver Israel from slavery. He led Israel to the land that God had promised. He represented Israel before God. He spoke to God face to face like a friend. The end of Deuteronomy says that Moses was more humble than any person on the earth. So imagine being able to speak to God and being humble at the same time. And finally, God personally and alone attended his funeral. The rest of God's people were allowed to go into the promised land, but Moses was not the one to lead them there. His assistant, his successor, Joshua, was going to get that privilege. But God took Moses up on a mountain so he could see the promised land. And when he was up there, he just didn't come back. Now, I don't know what kind of dignitaries are going to come to your funeral. I don't know what celebrities might be there that you might encounter at some point in your life. Maybe the mayor will show up at your funeral and that would be a great honor. But at Moses' funeral, God was there in person and God in fact said, I will handle his funeral alone. At a funeral, you know the person who's usually closest to them is the one who kind of does all the arranging. What a testimony about Moses that God said, I'm the closest one to him. And I will personally handle this. Moses was impressive. And so was Elijah. Elijah, his name means my God is Yahweh. And his ministry proved that. Because he preached against the worship of Baal, which was a very popular false god and idol in Israel at the time. Led by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And Elijah had more than one showdown with the king and queen and their prophets. Although Elijah was not perfect, he had his own moments of doubt and fear, which is good news for us. He was used by God to raise the dead. He mentored his apprentice, Elisha, even in a double portion of even Elijah's anointing. And Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So he never tasted death in the way that you and I will. God sent a a limousine of fire to pick him up and take him back up to heaven. And these two men appear with Jesus. Now, when you're listening, God, you'll notice Peter was afraid and bad theology came out. He was afraid and bad theology came out. He says in verse six, for they were terrified and did not know what to say. And what he said was, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. A little helpful hint. If you are ever on a mountain and Jesus is transfigured and then the great leader Moses and the great leader Elijah show up, nobody cares that you are there. Peter says, it's good that we are here. And he's just rambling. He's rambling. You know, Peter had an unstoppable mouth. Some of us know people like that. Some of us are people like that. And it's a roll of the dice in what's going to come out. Sometimes good stuff comes out. Like Peter confessed, Jesus was the Christ. He was the Savior. He was really the first person to do that in such a bold and public way. But then he confronted Jesus, tried to rebuke Jesus because he had an unstoppable mouth. And Jesus called him Satan. And now he's saying things that are not true. It's bad theology. What's he saying? First he says, 
It's good for us to be here. And then let's build a three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. What Peter is communicating in that moment is you can be the three figureheads of God's people. It cannot be overestimated today the importance of Moses and Elijah to first century Jewish people. That gets lost on us because we've only ever viewed those two through a Christian lens. But these were, this would be like Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird coming to play basketball on your Durant and three on three team. I mean, this, these were the heroes of the faith. This is LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry. They're with you and they're, they wanna wear your shoes and, and not just you wearing their shoes. These, these are heroes of the faith. And Peter says, Jesus, you're with them. You're with them. So it's the three of you. It used to really just be the two of them, the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. But now you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, so it's the three of you. But the transfiguration says it's not the three of them. They're not equal. They're not equal. Some people also believe Peter was trying to recreate Mount Sinai. Back in the Old Testament, God would appear on Mount Sinai in a cloud, which is in this story, with fire and thunder and lightning. And Moses would go up and God would speak to him. And one time Elijah went up and God spoke to him. And maybe Peter's saying, hey, this can be the new mountain of God. And whenever we look towards this mountain, which we can see from all over Israel, we will know God is with us. But that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, how do you know God is with you? Whenever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. How do you know that God is with you? How do you know the kingdom of God has come when we give cups of cold water to those who are thirsty, when we give our coats to the poor, when we love those who are in need? These are the things that Jesus said represented the kingdom of God, that we would go and we would preach the gospel, the good news, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That's how the kingdom of God comes, not on top of a mountain. But he was afraid, and so bad theology came out. That happens to us. I mean, we don't use the word fear because we're too tough for that, but we use the words words like worry, When I'm worried, bad theology comes out. When I'm worried and I pray and something doesn't immediately happen, bad theology comes out. God doesn't love me. I'm worried and I pray and nothing happens. Not only does God not love me, I'm not even a loving, kind God. He's cold and he's distant. I'm worried and I pray and nothing immediately happens. It's because my prayers aren't heard. Everyone else's prayers are heard because maybe they're professional prayers and I'm just not that experienced in it. When we are afraid, bad theology comes out, just like Peter. The transfiguration shows us that Jesus has no equals. Elijah is not an equal. Moses is not an equal. Jesus does not leave us room for a neutral, balanced thinking about him. It's extreme. Because not only are Moses and Elijah not equal with him. Jesus says, your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters not equal to him. Remember what he said? He said, if you don't love me more than your father and mother and brothers and sisters, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And then he said, your children. And my kids have just had their birthdays. Jackson turned 11 on Friday and I didn't grow up as a boy like, 
not, you know, like couldn't wait to be a father. I wasn't, you know, like playing house or any of those kinds of things. And uh, like Amanda kind of had to drag me into the whole experience. But I remember when we were in the hospital and 11 years ago, that little guy came out and it was just the three of us there in the room. Just instantly, I knew I would throw myself on a set of train tracks to save this kid's life. I will work hard and I will sweat and I will do whatever it takes to provide for him. And Jesus, he says, if I love that kid more than him, I'm not worthy to be his disciple. There are no equals. Your family is not an equal. Your friends are not an equal. Your dream is not an equal. Your career is not an equal. Your hope, your future is not an equal. Number to Jesus. And transfiguration shows that to us. And finally, number three, the transfiguration stirs up spiritual hunger. Verse nine, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come to first restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. So these three disciples, they have this experience and on their way down, they're stirred up. They're stirred up to know. They've just seen something that they can't imagine. A cloud has come and said, this is my beloved son. They've just experienced the deity of Jesus in a way that they were not expecting. And they're, they're stirred. And so they start asking questions. They start asking questions about, you know, some people say Elijah's gonna come and we just saw Elijah. Is that it? What's the fulfillment? And Jesus says, no, Elijah did come in the form of John the Baptist who prepared the way for me. And they questioned among themselves what Jesus meant by rising from the dead because they had that in their thinking. But when God would return back to their temple in Jerusalem, then there would be a resurrection of the dead. But that was gonna happen at like the end of the age. And Jesus is talking about being raised from the dead in an immediate way. And they didn't understand it. When you have a revelation, when you have an experience with Jesus, it stirs something in us. And that stirring is a sign of spiritual hunger. And we should let those questions lead us to Christ. We should let those questions, that thirst, that hunger for more knowledge, for more understanding, be an act of faith in our seeking. Transfiguration stirs spiritual hunger in us. Like for example, one question I'm interested in when I read Mark's account is what did Jesus and Moses and Elijah talk about? Were they just like, hey, it's good to see you. It's been 33 years. How you been? What did they talk about? Thankfully, Luke, Luke's account tells us what they talked about. You can see it on the screens. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They spoke about his death. They talked about the cross. I mean, the cross for us, we just wash over. It's just a part of the bigger picture. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, return. It just, the cross becomes just one of the moments in the life of Jesus. But imagine how lonely that was for him. 
I mean, at best, his disciples have partial understanding along the way. I mean, he's telling them clearly in Mark chapter eight, I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die and I'm gonna be raised again. And they, they don't get it. They don't understand. So God sends Moses and Elijah to just come around him to talk about it. Which is another reason we know Jesus has no equals because he has this glorious humility. He was humble because he gave himself over to these religious leaders to be crucified and die. But in chapter nine, we see he has unimaginable glory. You and I should be humble because there's always somebody better than us. There's always somebody wealthier than you. There's always somebody more accomplished than I am. There's always somebody who's more plugged in, more a part of something. So humility is appropriate for us because we don't have everything lined up in a perfect way. But Jesus did. If anybody could have just not been humble, it would have been him. him. But he had this glorious humility, filled with glory and yet humble. And that's how we are saved because it was humility that caused him to lay his life down on the cross. And it was a glory that actually made him accomplish something in that moment. So what do we do today? We've read about the transfiguration. Father, we weren't there. We weren't eyewitnesses. Well, we should follow the same directions that the Father gives to those three disciples. Verse seven, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We should do two things, just like those three disciples. First, we should stop talking. And second, we should start listening. The stop talking part is, Implied, Peter is talking about three tents and he's making Jesus and Moses and Elijah equal and a new Mount Sinai and the cloud comes to interrupt him. Stop talking. And the father says, listen to him. Start listening. We should listen to Jesus through the pages of the scripture. No one in here should ever say, God does not speak to me. God is always speaking. He is always speaking in every page, in the way it's woven together, how it fits together, he is always speaking to you in the pages of the scripture. We should listen when he sends other believers to us to encourage us, to build us up, to help us course correct. We should listen as the Holy Spirit who lives in us bears witness to the things that Christ has said. Jesus says in the gospel of Mark, the Holy Spirit will remind us of his words, the Holy Spirit applying all the things that the scripture has said about Jesus. Stop talking. I don't know about you, but sometimes I grow weary of weighing in, of weighing in on every possible opinion. The internet has done that to us. It says that our opinion matters. In fact, it says our opinion matters even when no one wants to read it. I got four followers on Twitter, but I re- those four really care about what I think about politics and what I think about my job and what I think about this piece of cake and what I think about a Shipley's donut and what I think about Houston traffic. All of that tells us your opinion matters. Weigh in, weigh in, weigh in, speak up, give your opinion. I'm not an expert. Sometimes I grow tired of claiming to be an expert about things that I am not an expert in. And it's a good reminder for the father to say to me, stop talking so that you can start listening. That's a good response to the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. In fact, let's practice a spirit of prayer. 
stop talking, start listening. You know, ask God, is there anything specific that you want to say to me today? Any specific way that you want me to apply the scripture that we've read? Any specific act of obedience in response to the transfiguration of Jesus? guests with us, we finish our services every week with the time of prayer. And our prayer folks are going to come forward and take their places up here in the front right now. As I say every week, if there's any prayer need that you have, this is exactly what this time is for. You come and be prayed for. We pray for two reasons. Number one, we love one another. Because we love one another, we pray for each other. And number two, Jesus said that God's house is a house of prayer. So if there's anything in your heart that you want to be prayed for today, you come and pray, you do not hesitate. I often say that, you know, I'd be the person in the back who would say, well, I'll just pray from where I am and that's, that's a good thing. And of course, God can hear you from the back or the front or wherever you are. And he hears us when we pray by ourselves, but I've never regretted saying out loud to someone, will you pray for me about this and, and listening to them pray. I, I've never regretted that, not specifically from you all either today. And so I wanna invite you to pray. I wanna invite you for anything, but specifically for three things. You remember the story in the gospels where Mary and Martha, two sisters were hosting Jesus in their home. Martha was busy, busy, busy. She was the hostess with the most. She was making everything happen. Meanwhile, her little sister Mary was in her mind being lazy and just kind of hanging out in and around Jesus. Martha comes into Jesus and says, hey, don't you tell her to get off her, you know, and come and help me. We're doing all this for you. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about many things, but only one thing is necessary. It's probably a pretty good summary of most of our lives right now. We got a lot going on, a lot going on, and we're concerned about many things. And if today you would say, I just want to focus on what's necessary. God, can you help me discern? And can you give me the strength to say, this is what is important. And this is what I want to give my life to. Can you calm everything else in my life? You come and pray. Number two, if there's someone that you love that's in need, you come and pray for them. They might not know that you prayed, but you never know what God might do in their life today because you prayed today. And finally, if you'd say, you know, it was cloudy this morning and my emotional state feels a little bit like the clouds outside. I just feel down. My soul is downcast. And you want your soul to be lifted up as the Psalms say. Then you come and pray that God might intervene and even your emotional health right now. So God, we love you and we love one another and we pray together. We pray you would answer these prayers for your glory, for the good of the children that you love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. It's by his power and strength. We know they'll be answered. Amen and amen. Let's worship together and as God stirs your heart, you don't hesitate to come and pray.